0: to this passage. Mike, would you pray for us? And I just pray that the Lord would give us illumination to understand what we're reading here. i told you this story before, uh, but now that we've come to this text, I think we need to hear it again. It's an important story from church history tied to this particular passage that we're looking at. So in the 1400 years that passed between the death of the Apostle Paul and the birth of Martin Luther, uh, there was no man more influential in the Christian church Uh, No man who likely did more to preserve the truth of the gospel than Augustine. And any CC students who have had me know, I want you to say it Augustine and not Augustine. I was taught that Augustine is a city in Florida and Augustine is the great Christian hero of the past. So it doesn't really matter, but Augustine. He was a brilliant man a philosopher, an orator, and he was living in blatant sexual immorality. Uh, He was living with a young lady in an immoral relationship. Despite the prayers and the tears of his godly mother, Augustine did not share her faith, and he was enjoying the pleasures of sin. But God worked in some providential ways to bring Augustine to a place where he fell under conviction. And the only thing that was keeping him from Christ was his love for his sexual sin. He had become intellectually convinced of the gospel. God used a, a very important man to, to bring that about. He had become convinced that the Bible was true, that Jesus was the Savior, that the way of salvation was by uh, faith in Jesus, but he couldn't quite take that stand because he was so ensnared by that sin. He knew that trusting Christ would mean turning from that sin, and he loved that sin too much. So during this time of inner conflict, agony in his conscience, he got into a conversation with his friend, Olypheus. And God used that conversation to put Augustine into an even higher intensity state of of turmoil. And so listen to Augustine speak in a prayer from his confessions of what happened next. He says, there was a small garden attached to the house where we lodged. I now found myself driven by the tumult in my breast to take refuge in this garden where no one could interrupt the fierce struggle in which I was my own contestant. I was beside myself with madness. I was frantic, overcome by violent anger with myself for not accepting your will and entering into your covenant. He's talking to God. I tore my hair and hammered my forehead with my fists. I locked my fingers and hugged my knees. I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave way to the tears which now streamed from my eyes. In my misery, I kept crying. How long shall I go on saying tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? All at once, I heard the sing song voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say. But again and again, it repeated the refrain, take it and read, take it and read. Tole tolelege. tole lege. I stemmed my flood of tears and I, I stood up telling myself this could only be a divine command to open my book of scripture, to read the, the first passage on which my eyes should fall. And so I hurried back to the place where Alypheus was sitting. I seized the book of Paul's epistles and I opened it. And in silence, I read the first passage on which my eyes fell. That passage is our passage this evening. His eyes fell on Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And immediately the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, changed Augustine's heart. He had loved sin more than God. That was no longer the case. In a moment, his eyes were open to the heinousness of his sin and the glory of Christ. And he chose to follow Christ. His life changed. He began a life of, of trusting and obeying Jesus. Here's what he said about it in his confession, still talking to God. How sweet did it become to me to be free of the sweets of folly? Things that I had once feared to lose, it was now a joy to put away. You cast them forth from me, you, the true and highest sweetness, you cast them forth, and in their stead you entered in, sweeter than every pleasure, brighter than every light, higher than every honor. Now was my mind free from the gnawing cares of favor seeking, of striving for gain, of wallowing in the mire, and of scratching lust, itchy sore. I spoke like a child to you, my light, my wealth. My salvation, my Lord God. Everything he had been afraid to let go of, he said suddenly the Lord was just taking them away. He just didn't care anymore because the goodness of God was infinitely superior to anything that those sins had ever offered him. For the first time, he had tasted and seen that the Lord is good, so good that everything else is rubbish compared to having him. Has that ever happened for you? Have you ever come to that place in your life where you've experienced that kind of repentance in your soul? We saw this morning that Paul is drawing our attention in this passage to the time in which we live. Right? We asked, what time is it? We saw the answer. We live between the two comings of Christ. Before Christ came into the world, the world was in darkness. It was nighttime. Gospel light could only be found in in the tiny little nation of Israel among all the peoples of the world. Israel was like a a lit candle at 2 a.m. while the rest of the world is in darkness. But when Jesus came, it was like the dawning of the sun. For not only did he accomplish salvation through his life, death, and resurrection, but then he sent out his apostles and the church with the Great Commission, and suddenly gospel-lied and the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone was going to the world. And for 2,000 years, the sun has been getting higher and higher in the sky. Darkness has been increasingly scattering away as more and more people are coming to Jesus, and the church is being built. And all of this is heading to that Eternal noon, when the Lord Jesus will come back and there will be no more darkness anymore. And Paul says, We are a people in the daytime. If you're a Christian, you're a person on whom the light has come. And he says, Now that it's daytime, don't keep living like you did in the nighttime. Knowing the time, seeing that every moment that passes is another moment closer to when Jesus comes back. Love others. Pay the debt of love to others. And pursue holiness. Bad things happen at night. People do stuff in the darkness they would never do in the light. But Paul says that our days of darkness are gone. Don't keep doing the things you did before you were saved. Don't live like you did when you were blind to the glories of God. Let the rest of the world play in the mud puddle. You have now been shown the ocean. Don't run back to the puddle. The rest of the world is obsessed with trifles. You've been shown the glory of God. You've been shown true gold. It is a relationship with Him. Don't run back from God to the trifles. daytime we are to be a people of light we are to live as people who have come to know the love of god and that love of god is changing us jesus is the light of the world and that light by christ spirit is in us so walk with the spirit let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven So along this theme then of its daytime, live as people of light, we have a positive command. And it's given to us two ways. First, at the end of verse 12, put on the armor of light. And Then again in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to take off the old clothes, the night clothes, the person we used to be. We are to put on new clothes. We are to put on clothes Proper to the daytime. Proper to the new people we are. We're to put on the armor of light. We're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Which sounds good, but what does it mean? And how do you do that? I know how to put on my pants one leg at a time, right? But how do you put on the armor of light? How do you put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, first, note that the word armor is a word of battle. You don't put on armor to go take a nap. You don't put on armor to go sit in front of the TV. You put on armor when you've been called to fight. So part of what Paul is saying here is this. When you were in darkness and you lived in sin, there was no fight. You were like a ship out at sea being carried along by the desires of your flesh and the temptations of the worldly culture, and you were just going wherever it took you. Or to use another picture, you were a fish just like all the other fish going downstream in a river. There was no fight, no battle. But now that your eyes have been opened to truth, goodness, and beauty... Now that your eyes have been opened to God himself and his love for you in Jesus Christ, having tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you can no longer be at peace with sin. You can no longer allow the winds of this world to take your ship wherever it may lead. There are some times where the wind of this world is taking you this way and you've got to say, Whoa, I've got to fight that wind. I'm not going that way. And there are some times and all the fish around you are swimming downstream and they're headed that way. And you suddenly realize, I cannot keep going that way. That way leads to destruction. And you've got to turn around. And now there's a fight because you've got to go upstream against the current, and against the schools of fish. To make peace with God is to declare war against sin because sin is the opposite of God. You cannot be at peace with both. Either you live comfortably in sin, and therefore you're at war with God. Or you find peace with God, and you are at war with sin. No one who has truly come to know God, no one who has truly tasted and seen the glories of God, wants to go back to their life of sin. God is so much better. God is so much more wonderful. God is so much higher and more glorious. You may have your moments. You may have your moments where you run back to sin. But at the core of every Christian, they have seen the Lord and they long to be free of anything that would keep them away from Jesus. So another illustration. Imagine a kingdom with a glorious king. However, all the citizens of the kingdom have rebelled against that king. All the citizens of the kingdom are rebelling against the king by breaking his laws and living how they want to live. Each day they go around tearing down the king's monuments, destroying the good things the king has built. They try and turn his kingdom into something terrible. Every day the citizens are harming each other. They're living only for themselves. And you're one of those citizens. You've been breaking down laws. You've been tearing down monuments. You've been helping destroy the kingdom. And then one day in the midst of this, you suddenly wake up. There's light. You come to your senses. It's like you were in a dream and then you snapped out of that dream. And you realize what you've been doing. Everyone else keeps doing what they've always done. Everyone else keeps living for themselves and sinning all the time and living in the ways of the world. And you're beginning to see all the damage you've done. And you run to the king. And you confess all the many ways you've broken his good law, all the ways you've despised him and harmed his kingdom, and you fall on your face before the king. You fully expect him to punish you. And he says, Dear child, I forgive you. And he loves you, and he adopts you as his child. And now you're part of the resistance. You're part of those who have awakened from the dream, who joyfully and willingly put on armor to go stand for the king against the hordes of blinded citizens living in rebellion. And your goal is not to harm them. Your goal is to call them to the same forgiveness you found. Your call is to be an ambassador for the king. And they call out to you, come back to your old life. Come back to the way you used to be. And every once in a while, as you see them all giddy, tearing down some monument of God, you you go join back in with them. It's, It's like you lose your mind for a second. You return to your old ways. But it doesn't last long. And you remember how gracious the King is for you. You remember how He has loved you. You remember His forgiveness You feel terrible for what you've done, and you go back to being his ambassador, calling others to stop their rebellion, calling others to make their peace with him. This this is the life of wakefulness. Everyone else is sleepwalking. You're awake. And you put on your armor every day because the temptations to go back to sleepwalking. The temptations to do those works of darkness you used to do. The temptations to be who you used to be. They are everywhere. But notice what kind of armor this is. It's the armor of light. Is that what Paul says? It's the armor of light. It's the armor of having seen. It's the armor of knowing the truth. Of being in the light. How do you protect yourself against going to the old man? How do you protect yourself against falling back into the old sins? You live in the light of God's truth of what you now know that you didn't used to know, what you now believe that you didn't used to believe, the truths of the promises of God. Or another way to put this, the armor is the word of God. Here is what you know and understand and believe that others don't see. Here is what's made all the difference for you, and it's why why you're awake while everyone else is sleepwalking. It's the Word of God that has been opened up to you and illuminated for you by the Spirit of God. It's God's Word that is a lamp unto your feet, a light unto your path, armor about you. How can a young man keep his way pure? Hiding God's Word in his heart. When we are being tempted to go back to our old ways, here is what will protect us. If we bleed Bible, if Bible is running through our veins, if the promises of God are in our minds and in our hearts and in our toes, if we are living in the truths of God's Word, that is our armor. How do we know this? Look at Jesus when he was being tempted by Satan. What was his armor? What protected him? Well, we see it in how he responded every single time. He was just recalling to mind and speaking out loud the word of God from the scriptures to defeat the temptations of Satan. The more you live in the truths of God's word, the more you'll be able to withstand the temptations of this world. Now let's be clear, it's not just knowing God's word, it's believing it. It's living it. Swimming in it. Being changed by it. So to put on the armor of light is to put on the armor of knowing that I am a blood-bought, heaven-bound, spirit-indwelt child of God. To put on the armor of God is to walk in the truth of the fact that I am God's and He is mine. It's not about who I am. It's about whose I am. My armor is the reality of my identity in Christ. When I start to get frustrated with people around me. When I want to yell at the person who has done me wrong. When I want to lose my temper or get frustrated or go pout. You ever want to go pout? Right? No. No. I am a priest and a prince in the kingdom of God. That's who I am. I am an ambassador of God himself. I deserve an eternity in hell. And eternity is a really long time. And hell is a really terrible place. And I'm going to heaven. It's living in that that protects us. OK, so that's putting on the armor of light. What do you do? You bring to mind, you live in, you believe, you, you, you soak on, you meditate on the glorious promises of God, the truths of God's word, the light that has now been revealed to you. So what does Paul mean when he switches his language from putting on the armor of light to putting on the Lord Jesus Christ? I think these two ideas are actually very similar, but the first emphasizes that the Christian life is a battle, armor, battle. That's to be fought in truth, right? We fight this battle in the truth, in the light of God's word. The second emphasizes our intimacy with Jesus Christ. It's not just that I'm to put on God's word generally. I am to put on specifically who I am in Christ, my connection with him, the salvation I have in him, the fact that we are one. The more we live in the reality of our oneness with Christ, the less pull sin will have on us. Let's Say that again. The more you live in the reality of your oneness with Christ, the less pull sin will have on us. Let me give you three reasons why that's true. See if this doesn't help you in your fight against sin. I hope it does. First, when you're living in the reality of Christ's love, that He has made you His own and made you one with Him, you don't want to do anything that would grieve Him. That would grieve Him. Here is the one who has done so much for you. He came from heaven to earth. I mean, sometimes we tell someone, I love you so much, I would move heaven and earth for you. Jesus did, so to speak. Your mama likely loved you very greatly. Your mama's love was a drop of the ocean compared to the kind of love that Jesus has for you. How do you know? He suffered the wrath of God for you. Dear Christian. Willingly. In your place. He ever lives. To make intercession for you in heaven. This fear, it's not It's not just that Jesus loved you. Past tense at the cross. No, this very moment. As you sit in this room. Jesus is interceding before the father for you. He knows you. He knows your needs. He knows what's required to make sure you make it safely to heaven. And he is petitioning the Father. Father, this person needs it. The Father puts it in the hand of Christ. Christ sends it to the Holy Spirit. In answer to your prayers. Jesus is loving you every moment of every day. Here is the one who has loved you more completely, more deeply, more wonderfully than any other human being in the history of the world. And all of that in spite of the fact that He knows everything. He knows everything about you. He knows the most wicked, most vile, most heinous thoughts you've ever thought. The thoughts that you've tried to pretend they never crossed your mind. The things that you said that you're thankful that nobody else remembers. The things that you've done that no one else knows about. Jesus knows it all. And yet He loves you more than anyone. In the face of that love, it should make us sick to our stomachs to think about grieving him. It should turn our stomachs to think about grieving the heart of our bridegroom. Think about my great grandmother, Ada Bell Driver Nail. I knew her as Mama. Godly woman. When I think about how she loved me, how she prayed for me, her humble meekness, I can't think about her and be happy in sin. I cringe when I think about my sins in light of her love for me and her desires for me to be holy and her prayers for me. I want to be the kind of person my mom all dreamed I would be. I would just assume have my arm chopped off as do anything that would grieve her humble soul. How much more when it comes to Jesus Christ. The more you live in his love and experience his tender care and his never-ending patience with us. How it should twist us all up inside to even consider doing something against him. So then second, when you're living in active fellowship with Jesus, when you're living as one with Christ, you don't want to do anything to disrupt that fellowship, to disrupt that fellowship. And that is what sin does. Sin disrupts fellowship. Even when we're saved, even when all of our sins, past, present, future are forgiven, our sin still disrupts our fellowship with Jesus. And you know this. You've experienced this. Sin makes you not want to pray. Remember how Adam and Eve sinned, and then here comes God in the garden? And what Were they inclined to run to God? They were inclined to hide. There is something about sin, even as a saved, forgiven person, that if you let it fester... It will harden your heart and turn you away from prayer. Sin will harden your heart so that you don't want to be in your Bible. and You don't want to be around your Christian friends. And you don't want to be in church. If you haven't been praying regularly... And your active fellowship with Jesus has been lacking. This is probably the reason why. There is some sin or some number of sins that you're refusing to confess. You're refusing to make right before Christ. And so you're trying to avoid him. Don't avoid the one who is your dearest friend and greatest companion. Don't avoid the one who is the lover of your soul. Yes, sin has a way of interfering with our happy fellowship with Christ. But when you sin, you need to, you need to, that's all the more when you need to run to Christ, make things right with Christ, confess. And As unpleasant as it is, let it be a reminder and a warning to you. This is all the more reason to avoid sin to begin with. So that you don't have to live in that period of, oh, I've dishonored my Savior. Oh, I know I need to pray. I don't want to pray. I don't want to confess this before him. Oh, have you ever experienced that turmoil as a saved person? As a Christian person? Sin disrupts fellowship with Jesus. If you loved your fellowship with Jesus, and I hope you do, that'd be a reason to avoid sin. Then third, when you are living as one with Christ as part of the bride of Christ, as part of the body of Christ, you don't want to bring dishonor to His name. And as Christians, we wear the name of Jesus everywhere we go. Everything we do, we do as those who belong to Him as a part of His body. So when you or I sin, we are tainting the very honor and name of the Holy Son of God. In 1 Corinthians six fifteen, speaking about sexual immorality, Paul says this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. In other words, his example, if you go sleep with a prostitute, you are doing so as a member of Christ's body. And in this way, there is a sense in which you are bringing Christ into that sin. Now, that's true in a unique way when it comes to sexual immorality, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 6. But it's also true in a general way of every sin. Can you imagine what it would be like if parts of your body were actively doing things wicked and evil against your will? You ever play the game with your kids React you act like your hand's out of control and you just keep... Oh wait, I would never slap my children. But you know what I'm talking about. It's just a little, you know, right? That kind of thing, right? Well you, well, you just pretend like the parts of your body are out of control. Well, what if in reality, the parts of your body were going against your will and doing wicked and evil things? Hitting people, your mouse cursing people for no reason, you... In a very real real way, we are parts of the body of Christ. When we go against his will and do wicked things, it is members, it is parts of the body of Christ doing those things. So many people want nothing to do with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because they've seen what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has done. When it comes to wickedness, hypocrisy, sin, evil. And they say, well, that's what Jesus is like bitter infighting, the jealousy, the anger, the quarrels. I don't have anything to do with him. How do we explain? Well, we're, those were members of his body gone rogue. But we're all members of his body who from time to time go rogue. What we do as members of Christ's body reflects on him as our head. And if it is our mission, and it is... To show His goodness and His glory and His purity and His holiness to the world. That people will come to Him and be saved. It is contrary to the very purpose of our lives to sin as Christians. Nothing hurts the purpose of our mission more than when we sin. Think about how sweet the name of Jesus is. And all that His name means to us. What the name of Jesus means to us will largely depend on a, Well, let me say it again. What the name of Jesus will mean to others will largely depend on us who wear his name. Can you imagine someone taking a priceless, masterful piece of art by Michelangelo and then smearing dog poo all over it? Dear Christian, you are loved and united to the Holy, Holy, Holy Son of God. Don't take someone so pure, so glorious as Jesus and bring him into connection with the vileness, the grossness, the heinousness of sin. So, to summarize all of this, what does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? It means to live in your identity as one bought by Christ, loved by Christ. The one who is one with Christ, united to Him. To put on the Lord Jesus Christ is to live in your relationship with Jesus, to find your joy and your security completely in Him. It is to live in the reality not of who you are, but whose you are. And when we do this, everything in us should have a holy revulsion to sin. So how are we doing? Are we living in our identity as Christians? Would you say that your union with Jesus Christ is the most important fact about you? The most important fact about you. I'm one with Christ. What's more important than that? Is the most important reality of your life, the overarching fact that means more than any other, the the truth that shapes the orientation of your life, the one that brings you active fellowship with your Savior, is it this fact that you are one with Christ? When we get up every day, we ought to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I am Christ. He is mine. I belong to Him. And I'm going to walk this day as is part of his bride, as part of his body, and the glory of his name. Now our chapter ends with a very practical command. I love this about Paul. He gives us both these overwhelming worldview-shaping truths that help us fight sin. And he also gives very practical helps. Very nitty-gritty practical helps. The overarching worldview-shaping truth in this passage is that we belong to Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. And we need to live in that to have victory against sin. If you put on that reality each day, it will save you from many sins and a whole lot of heartache. But the very practical, nitty-gritty command is this. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So here's the reality. As long as you're in this life, you are going to have to battle your flesh. Your flesh is the old man in you, the, the residue of the person you used to be before you were born again. Your flesh is the part of you that keeps saying, run back to the nighttime, run back to the nighttime. It wants you to serve you instead of Jesus. The flesh is that part of you that wants you to live for your own earthly pleasure instead of the higher joy of knowing and serving Jesus. And your flesh can be powerful at times. If you make provision for your flesh. If you make it easy for your flesh, it will subdue you. You used to be a slave to your flesh. You used to be a slave to the sinful desires in you. When Jesus came upon you through the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing you to faith, the chains of your slavery were broken. You are not a slave to your flesh any longer. But when you make provision for your flesh, it's like you're putting the handcuffs back on. (laughs) By making provision for your flesh, it's like you run back to the broken chains and you, and you try to put them back around your wrists and your ankles. Your wrists and your ankles. Right? I do know my wrist from my ankle. If you continue to give in to your flesh, feeding its desires, allowing your flesh to have its way with you, you will end up proving that you never had real saving faith at all. And you'll make shipwreck of your profession. Or not to make provision for the flesh, what does that mean? How, how would someone make provision for the flesh? Well, if you struggle with pornography, do you allow yourself to be alone with your computer at 10 pm? If you struggle with alcohol, do you allow yourself to be put in situations where alcohol is readily available to you and no one sees? If you struggle with gossiping and misusing your tongue, do you continue to hang out with other people who do the same thing and encourage you to do it? For the sake of the name of Christ Jesus, we are to declare war on those sins that have a hold on us. And as a strategy in that war, you are to look for the situations. You are to look for the circumstances that seem to set you up for failure time and time and time again. And then you do whatever it takes to get out of those situations. You starve your flesh. You don't feed it. You say no to yourself. You bring your body and its desires under your control. What does feeding the flesh look like? It's, it's the person that says, um, I'm giving up my addiction to hard drugs. So I'm going to go to some that are less powerful. And I'm going to turn to alcohol. Or I'm going to turn to cigarettes. And what are you doing? You're still feeding the same impulse. And ultimately it's going to lead you right back to where you are. Think about what that means for your life. If spending is a problem for you, make sure there are no credit cards in your wallet. Just carry a budgeted amount of cash. If laziness is a problem for you, make sure you create a schedule for your life that gives your flesh little time to tempt you to idleness. Now, Herman, this verse is the very wisdom of God for our lives. And all I can do is give you the principle. You have to do the application. How have you been making provision for your flesh? How have you been setting yourself up for failure? And how can you cut that provision off right now? For Augustine, he ended his relationship with his girlfriend. He didn't say, well, we can still be friends. We'll still hang out from time to time and go to dinner together. He ended it. It was done. It was over. He moved away. He put hundreds of miles between them. That's what he had to do in order to follow Christ. What must you do? What changes must you make to be his and completely his alone? This whole passage is calling us away from cheap grace. Cheap grace is the kind of grace that says you can be forgiven of your sins and go to heaven and it won't cost you anything. Cheap grace says you can follow Jesus without self-denial, without sacrifice. But now, Herman, cheap grace is not saving grace. Cheap grace is a lie of the devil. Salvation is free because of what Jesus did on the cross. But when a person is saved, when a person is justified freely by faith in Jesus Christ, that faith then shows itself in the good works of killing sin, pursuing righteousness, self-denial, sacrifice. If your life of following Jesus isn't causing you to hate sin and be rid of it, you don't yet know Jesus. can't claim to love Jesus and follow him while being at peace with sin. I love Duke and the Tar Heels. No, you don't. You can't do that. Make a choice, right? Some things are just total opposites. To love one is to hate the other. To love Jesus, you must hate sin. Sin is everything opposed to Jesus. If you're going to follow Jesus, you must embrace all righteousness, love all righteousness, and hate all sin. And therefore, you're in the continual battle of putting away all sin. So, let us put on our armor of light, the truths, of the gospel, and who we are in Christ. Let us put on the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that we are one with him, that we wear his name, that we belong to him. And with that armor and with the Lord Jesus Christ, let's fight against sin, knowing that the ultimate victory has already been won. And there will be a day when we will put our weapons down and the fight will be over and we will celebrate the victory as pure and holy people with our pure and holy Savior in heaven forever. Amen. Amen. Any any questions before we close?